The high school baseball player hung a homemade motivational sign on the wall of his bedroom. It read, Brandon Puffer will be a major league baseball player. Indeed, Puffer made it to what ball players call the show, only to fall from the bullpen in the state penitentiary in Texas. Hello, I'm Robert Riggs, here with a story from inside the crime scene tape that begins on a baseball diamond. Brandon Puffer was a pitcher on the Boston Red Sox baseball team when they broke a century-old curse and won the World Series in 2004. But four years later, a Texas jury sentenced Puffer to five years in prison. He survived the tough Texas prison system and is now out. Puffer has written a book titled From the Bullpen to the State Pen, which he opens up about his experience. In this episode of True Crime Reporter, Puffer shares the story of his setbacks and comeback. I got drafted out of high school, so you think you're kind of a big deal, right? And you show up to rookie ball in the minor leagues. Um, I was in Fort Myers, Florida. And essentially, when it comes to the pay, it, it, they're doing better now from what I understand. But it was very minimal. So you had your very minimal pay. I want to say about $850 a month. And then they took money out for a hotel. And then they took money out for your food that they fed you at the hotel. And you didn't really have an option on that. And so by the end of the day, just to give you an idea, there was one two-week check. I had been fined. So that was my fault. I made a bonehead decision, got fined. I got $50 for two weeks. And I literally said to the Minnesota Twins, I said, how do I live off this? And they said, we don't, we just look at the bottom line. We don't, you know what I mean? There's just deductions and this and that, and that's it. So it was very minimal. And and, um, you know, you just the pay is not there. But the ultimate goal is you want to be in the big league. So you, you persevere and you fight through it. But there are 5,000 of you in the minors that want 750 roster positions, many of which are taken already by stars. They're very true. Yeah, that's I think that's where the mental part of the game comes in and just really focusing on your process and not letting external things like how many folks you're competing against or how many spots there are. And I'll be honest, I learned that in one day, Robert, I, I looked at the spring training rosters. I was in the very lowest. I was in rookie ball and there's rookie ball, single A, double A, triple A, major leagues. And I looked at each roster and they were all had about 50 people on them. And as you know, there's only going to be 25 on each. And it really shook me up. And I said, hey, from here on out, I'm not looking anymore. I'm just going to put my head down and go to work and, and hope for the best. And so you do have to kind of block out some of that external stuff. So I want you to talk about the journey to what you call the show sure. and where you go. But getting out of the minors, I mean, how do you do that? Is it a grind? It absolutely is a grind. Um, and I'm on, I, you know, I have a program now and we've had some kids drafted. And so obviously they want to pick my brain about that. And I'm very honest. It is an absolute grind. I mean, day in and day out. Uh, the hotels aren't nice. The bus rides are long. The fields, it depends. Some are okay. And you really just have to remember your why and, and where you want to ultimately go. And I think several guys give up. I, I call it a war of attrition. They quit or give up right before their opportunity might happen, right? I, I was released four times before I ever made it to the big leagues. And if at any point in those four, I would have said, you know what? I'm not good enough. It's not for me. Then I would have never got to experience that great mountaintop of the big leagues. So it's just uh, – Again, I hate to sound cliche, but just being focused on this is all I've ever wanted to do and nothing 
is going to keep me from from that or quitting or stopping short of all 30 teams saying you're just not good enough, right? Well, tell us about the day that you did get called up to the show. Sure. Yeah. What an awesome day. It was uh, April 17th, uh, 2002. I was in AAA with the Houston Astros. I was playing for the New Orleans Zephyrs. And after the game, our manager called me in and uh, they had a couple injuries in the bullpen in Houston. And he said, Puff, your team needs you. And uh, you're meeting the team in Cincinnati tomorrow. Your flight leaves in the morning. Uh, what a thrill, you know, just packed up, teammates congratulating me, called my family, enjoyed all those moments. And then um, the next day, I met the team in Cincinnati and just had that surreal feeling of walking into that major league clubhouse and seeing my jersey hung up and and all those neat things. So it was, it was a wonderful opportunity and, and just a great memory for our family. And how much of that do you think was driven by talent versus timing? There has to be a combination of all of that, uh, talent, timing, uh, even a little bit of luck. But I think timing, you, you kind of hit on it, is the best way. Because when it comes to the talent aspect, most guys in the minor leagues, most, you know, you have your, your outliers, are pretty equal in talent. It's pretty close anyway. But really separates guys is, is their, their consistency, consistency, I should say. So some guys can do it really well every now and then, but you can't really rely on them. So I think when I learned to be consistent in my routine and then I became more consistent in my outings, I think that's where they go, okay. This guy's ready because he's being consistent as opposed to we've seen flashes from these other guys, but we just can't rely on them. We can't count on them, right? So it's consistency and then absolutely timing. And of course, I think everybody in that in that system has talent or they wouldn't be there. And you're a pitcher? Yes. Uh, right-handed, left-handed? Right-handed pitcher. Um, towards the end, I was a right-handed sidearm pitcher. And I mean, it always struck me is that, boy, that is the pressure point on the team. Sure. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it certainly can be a, a lonely place if it's not going well or, mm-hmm. you know, a place of, um, hey, you know, I'm going to put this team on my shoulders and kind of be a leader out here. And obviously you're in every pitch and you kind of the timing and the, the mm-hmm. everything about the game kind of is, is set by you. And so I think catcher is probably the most important because they, they're the general back there. I love the catching position. But yes, pitcher is, uh, can, again, can be lonely, but also can be very rewarding. And so did it teach you something about stress? It has to be incredibly stressful. Everyone's watching and yeah. you, you might yeah. be having a bad day. It did. It taught me a lot about that. And, and really what it taught me was the power of positive self-talk, the power of controlling your breathing, um, different mantras that I had because it was easy to get up there and start thinking about all the external things like you're facing guys that were your idols and the stadium's packed and I always tell people my dad was a huge Dodger fan. We, we watch games together and he'd be yelling at the relievers. And I'm like picturing all these people in this town of Houston mad at me because I'm letting them down. So you have to kind of really get intentional about your, your mental game once you get there. And then you moved on to a world championship. I did. I ended up um, after the Astros, I got a little bit of time with the San Diego Padres. And then I was traded to the Boston Red Sox in 2004, the year they won the World Series. I was called up extremely briefly um, in September. And I think just because they were so ecstatic to winning the first one in you know hundreds of years, they gave anybody who was on the roster at any point during the year a World Series ring. So I was a small part of that. Um, certainly didn't, didn't um, you know, help or contribute all that much other than when I was with the Padres, uh, we played against the Red Sox in Fenway and we lost the game and I pitched for the Padres. So a little bit, I did contribute a little bit, but I didn't pitch that for Boston at all. 
But still, you ended up with a World Series ring, and not many yes. people do that. Yes. But that's, what, 2004? Yes, sir. And in reading your book and your history, it sounds like the wheels start to come off after that. Absolutely. That is the year. Prior to that year, I had I had I become sober. I went through a program. I quit drinking and, and all those things. So I was sober for five years. And I... It, that was where my career really took off because I was healthy and taking care of myself and resting and all the things you need to do to compete at a high level. And in 2004, I got separated from my first wife um, and I was not accountable anymore at home. And I had a little more of that downtime and my mind was going and I ended up, you know, for lack of a better term, falling off the wagon in 2004 and really let that battle back in my life. And from then on was scrapping and battling um, from 04 through 08, the end of my career um, very tough job or um, very tough lifestyle for someone with those addictions. Um, there's a lot of downtime, a lot of things kind of offered to you that um, I had a hard time, you know, uh, managing. And did you start having a problem with your elbow? That, that is well. Yeah, I did. I did. I, I had, um, I guess that was about that time, about 2004, I had a big bone spur come up in my elbow, big hook in my elbow. And, um, you know, just kind of slowly but surely my stuff, my actual physical stuff on the mound started to decline a little bit. And so certainly my, my off the field as well as on the field were on the decline from 2004. But you end up in north of Dallas where I am at Frisco with the Frisco Rough Riders, which yes. was a farm team for the Texas Rangers. Baseball Absolutely. Team. As a double-A affiliate for the Rangers. And you're a player coach, which I would think, man, that's uh, what you'd love. Yes. I absolutely adored it. My my whole goal was to be a coach after my career, so it was it was, an, it was a segue into that. Yeah, but one day on the field there, you're wearing the the jersey, and the next day you're wearing a an orange prison jumpsuit. What yes. happened? Yes. Yeah, so I um, again, as I alluded to, I had these issues with alcoholism, and I just knew for me, uh, some guys could just go blow off some steam after the game. No problem for them. They recover. They're all good. I just didn't have that off switch, Robert, and I knew that. So it was all on me to make a choice, either go to your hotel and do what you're supposed to do or go out. And I had fought these guys. So these guys were um, on the Frisco Rough Riders were all 19 and 20, um, big-time prospects who all ended up making pretty good careers, or a lot of them did. I was 32, uh, had already been in the big – it was kind of like Bull Durham, Crash Davis scenario, and they just kept pulling on me to go out. And I wish I could say peer pressure ends. I fought it for the whole year, and by the end, we were celebrating the championship. And I made that compromise and I went out with the guys and I, I drank too much and I got overserved and I ended up, um, as you said, in jail the next day with a pretty serious charge that would ultimately lead me to a five-year sentence in Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And I went and served almost four years in prison for that. And so definitely a, a rock bottom moment, a, um, a watershed moment in my life for sure. We're going to pause for a moment for a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about on, being on trial and going to the Texas prison system. I'm talking with Brandon Puffer, who was a big league baseball player who went from wearing the, uh, the jersey and what they call the show to an orange jumpsuit and later the white jumpsuit in the Texas prison system. Brandon, you got intoxicated. You overdid it. You were fighting addiction. What happened uh, just in general that got you arrested. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I'm pretty open about my story, Robert. And what had happened was I, 
went back to an apartment complex that I had stayed in the year before, previously with my family. However, my family was not with me. And um, a couple of the guys were staying there. And I something in my overserved brain, and, and a lot of this I got from those guys, I kept saying, hey, I have a friend that lives in here. I'm sure they're having a party. I'm going to go check. They're saying, hey, go to bed. It's, it's three in the morning. Go to bed. I went over, knocked on a door. And I'm just going to detail for you. It just depends on the audience of how much detail I go into. But uh, essentially what I did is I knocked on that door. She did not answer. Obviously, it's three in the morning. I walked in. The door was unlocked. And that's sad to say. I walked in and I tried to get in bed with her. And I got a burglary of a habitation. So I, I kind of sobered up once I, I she screamed, which is the worst part of this whole thing for me to recount. Because that's the one thing I remember is, is I took away your sense of safety. And so fortunately, I, you know, I didn't do anything or touch her or anything. But when she screamed, I jumped up. I ran out. And um, you know what? I put myself in that situation, burglary of a habitation, because I walked in where I wasn't supposed to with an intent to commit a sexual assault. Because what is your intent if you're at three in the morning and you're trying to jump in bed? And my brain and playing baseball and living the lifestyle I live somehow thought, oh, sure, this is going to be okay, right? And so, I mean, saying that now obviously is, you know, like anyone else would react. I respond like, what, a, what an idiot, what, you know, but at that time in that overserved brain, I thought, sure, we're going to go and hang out. Well, and you, you talked about that uh, in your world, alcohol would lead to promiscuity. Yes. For me, especially, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, you know, and I, and I don't know, I, I've I've taken on the journey of healing and all those things. I had some childhood traumas in the form of sexual abuse and stuff. And so I don't know if there was something in there that just every time I went and, and, uh, you know, drank, that was the next thing is, you know, you know, try to be a man and connect with a woman or something like that. So yeah, it wasn't an issue for me. So you can, you know, this is a, you can do five to 99 on this charge. Did you understand or did it hit you at some point of just how much trouble and risk you were in, or did it end up being a shock later when the verdict came down? You know, what, Robert, I don't know if it ever fully hit me, but I really kind of disengaged from any, you know, internet or anything like that. I was just really with my family leaning in and one day I, I Googled my name. I was like, I just, I got to see what's going on. And, and I saw former Houston Astros reliever faces five to 99 years. It was the first I'd ever heard of it. I'm sure my attorney told me, but I was just so, it was just such an out-of-body experience. I didn't I really uh, ingest it, I guess. And when I saw that, I said, wow, oh my goodness. And so going into the trial, he had mentioned, you know, you've never been in trouble, these types of things. You have some good character witnesses, you know, most likely you'll get probation, that kind of thing. But still, I had no idea. You know, it's a huge range. But you didn't get probation. You, I did you not. You got a five-year sentence. Yeah. When that verdict came down, what what did it say inside to you? Oh, that's a great way to – that's a great question, a great way to form that. The only thing I really remember is obviously it was a, it was a gut punch. You know, hey, five years, going to prison. And they pretty quickly, the bailiffs came and put me in handcuffs, as they do. And I just, I looked at him and I said, can I go say bye to my dad? And they said, no. And they took me off. And right there is when I really kind of got the feeling of, okay, this is kind of your new normal. You don't have choices anymore. You're not making your own choices or decisions. And they pulled me off and put me in a little holding cell, took all my belongings. And that's where it really sunk in. I, I literally remember and can visualize it every time I share this, the bars clanking and me sitting in that cell. And that's where it was like, okay, yeah, you're not getting out of this. And this is your consequences for your actions. And you're going to try to make the most of it. And then typically in Texas, you'll, you'll do a, maybe a day, a month, 
in county jail until it becomes your time to go to the state penitentiary, which is oh, a total different experience. Yes. You ride the bus to the penitentiary. Just tell that story for so people really understand what, yes. what that's like and what happens. Yes. Yeah, so to, to your point, um, you know, I was in the county jail and you kind of wait on that day. And, you know, there's other po- folks in there have kind of been through the system and they try their best to prepare you and, and what to expect. And um, for obvious reasons, or maybe not so obvious, they don't tell you when they're picking you up, you know, because if someone was to try to, you know, meet you, whatever the case may be, they don't tell you. So you basically get a knock on your bunk at about three in the morning, you know, usually middle of the night and says, hey, pack your stuff. You're on chain is what they call it. And they chain you to a bunch of other guys heading down to the same area. We ended up going to an intake unit in Gurney, pretty much walk in. They strip you down naked, shave your head check you for everything, get you, get you through the whole process. And I mean, that in itself, obviously you'd finally found your little rhythm and routine in County, you know, just, Hey, figure out how to get through each day. And now is another shell shocking moment to be in actual prison and, and intake. So that happened. And then it just so happened as well that it was summertime. There's no AC in Texas prisons. Uh, we were on a lockdown for nine days. So I didn't leave my bunk and it was just the reality of like, Hey, this, this is it now you need to figure out how to, be, you know, have your life have purpose and meaning and what does that look like in here? And so, yeah, it was a pretty rude awakening as it, as it should be. I mean, that's why it's created that way. Did you find yourself looking over your shoulder, wondering if somebody's going to assault me, try to take my stuff? Tell, tell me about that adjustment. Yeah. So every day, the answer is yes. Every day in County, a few guys who had done time, kind of told me what to expect. I heard things like, you'll have to join a gang with your race. And I, I even kind of said, guys, that's just not going to happen for me. I'll do whatever I have to do. I'll protect myself, whatever it is. But uh, essentially, my faith is going to get me through. I am going to just be the most positive influence I can be in that place. And you know what? I, I did. You know, I heard when you get to a new dorm or a new cell is when they're really going to try to test you. So I would sit down and set my stuff down and Certainly in my mind was thinking at any moment, I'm going to have to protect myself and maybe I'll have to do whatever I have to do, you know, and I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't, didn't really happen for me very often. I was respectful to people. I'm a bigger guy. Some people say that helps because they kind of prey on weaker people. So I didn't really necessarily have a, a real difficult time like with that, other than just the mental aspect of seeing it, watching it happen to other people, uh, expecting any moment it could be you, that type of thing. I would think, I mean, I've spent a lot of time on the other side of the bars in the the prisons, and I, but I would think that you would have to have a moment when you see the ones that are really big screw ups, you're like, wait a minute, how have I ended up with these guys? You know, sort of, (laughs) it's a hard one to answer. I always actually talk more about the amount of men and certainly there were some where you're like, wow, it's pretty scary. And I mean, mental illness is clear in some cases. And you're just like, steer clear. That's a pretty dangerous person. But then also just the amount of people I met that were great men, talented men, like athletes on the rec yard or artists or musicians, you know, whatever the case may be, that were in that same place, had the same plight because of one bad choice or addiction. And 99% of the time, it's, it's alcohol and drug related, no matter what they did. And so that really kind of took me back, you know, of like, wait a minute, there's some really good guys in here. And I mean, you don't have to be on your, you know, you have to certainly protect yourself and not get too comfortable or anything like that. But it's like, wait a minute, like I can relate to a lot of these people. I just thought, hey, this is going to be a bunch of bad guys. I don't belong here. It's like, no, they 
I made a poor choice. So did they. And and this is where we are. And so I, I tried really hard. And I actually have more of a heart for for people now after going through that experience that I didn't have previously. Now, you had an experiment experience at one point where you, your cellmate was Wallace Bone Bowman. Tell me about him. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So as, as you know, but I don't know if all the listeners know, you typically, when you... When they put you in a cell, it's normally with people with similar time in terms of like their sentence and similar crimes. And the reason for that is just because obviously the more time you have, the more heinous your crime was, the less you really have to lose. And so I was typically just sitting with guys who had a, you know, they call them short timers, a little five or 10 year sentence. And I went on a medical chain. I had some issues. I went on a medical chain to Galveston and I had to stop in transit, the bird unit in Huntsville, which you, you're probably familiar with. And they walked me in my cell. And it was the very end of the run, uh, no, no, nobody nearby. And I walk in, there's this gentleman on the top bunk in his boxers because it's summer, it's hot. And I said, you know, as you also may know, you don't ask what you're there for, how much time you're doing. It's just not what you don't do it. And I said, hey, how's it going, man? And, and he said, oh, I'm trying to give some of this time back to the state. And so he opened the door. I said, oh, they gave you a lot of time. He said, yeah, three life sentences. And so immediately, I'm pretty sure I know what Bone's in here for. And uh, right away, it was very scary. I was going to just, okay, survival mode again, right? Like stay to yourself, do your thing. Bone and I spent, I think it was nine or 10 days, somewhere in that range of 24-hour lockdown together, eight by 10. And, you know, the first couple of days, I had my pocket Bible with me. I'd read and hang out. And then we'd conversate. And we'd share stories. And, you know, we ended up, we had humor. We, I mean, it was a very normal person, obviously, or, or honestly. And had a horrible, horrible thing that he did. And so long story short, I, I think I was able to encourage Bone in some ways, fortunately. And uh, as I left, he said, you know, hey, Pavit, you know, enjoyed it. Good luck, whatever. And then he said, I got to tell you, uh, the night before they brought you in here, I had hung up my sheets and was going to end my life. And, and you, you showed me some hope and encouragement. That just blew me away. I mean, I, I do try to be a guy who, who is an encourager and, and, and all that, no matter where I am. But the fact that I was just by chance, and I don't believe in chance, in a cell with Bone when he needed that hope and encouragement um, was a really cool opportunity for me. But he insisted at one point that he was not violent. Yeah, yeah, Bone. So by the time we were a little more comfortable together, Bone would say, Puff, I'm, I'm not, a, I mean, he, Robert, he, he, he told me the details and it was, it was horrific. It really was. And, and uh, he would say things like, oh, I'm not a violent man. I'm like, Bone, you, you, you got a Grim Reaper tattooed on you. And on your stomach. And it also says rage across your stomach. Come on, man. And he's like, no, but you know. And so, yeah, it was just so interesting to, and I've always been curious. I'm into the ID life, you know, the ID network, the shows, the kind of stuff you guys do. And it's like, man, I'd never thought I'd have an opportunity for nine days to just sit here and ask questions and pick his brain. Not so much about the crime stuff. I didn't really want to know, but um, just how he ticks, like what's going on here? How'd you end up here? You know? Did inmates figure out that you're a professional baseball player? I know there's a case that a guard did. Yeah. Yeah. Several of them did um, either by like a family member or, you know, they'd, you know, I'm a pretty open guy, open honest guy. If they asked me what I did, I, I would share it. And so they did. And, you know, I wasn't sure, Robert, if that was going to be like a target on my mm-hmm. back. Like, hey, That's this true. guy, you're, you're not true. out here on the field, right? I think all in all, it ended up being more of, um, you know, a, a something of respect and they, they, I'd done something in the world in their eyes and they kind of, you know, like to ask about it or talk about it. And I, I was pretty active on the rec yard and helped some guys with working out and stuff. And then to your point about with the guard, 
Um, it was a pretty hard guard. I remember that I can picture it right now. And I was picking up my janitor supplies. I was a janitor in prison as well. And, um, he looked at me and they can't have any contact with inmates. And he said, um, it was one of the hard guys too. There's some hard ones. And he said, you, you played for the Houston Astros? I said, yeah, oh, yes, sir. I did. And he reached his hand out and I looked at him like, and I, I kind of took back. He goes, shake it. And I shook his hand. He said, I'm effing proud to know you and proud of what you did. And it brought me to tears. Uh, I didn't really show him then. I went back to my bunk. It was the first time in a long time I felt human. And I felt like he treated me like a human based on, even if it was based on what I did in baseball, it really touched me. And I didn't, it was really surprising that I, you know, it had been that cold that that something like that would touch me like that. So talk about the loneliness. Yeah. 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 Try to, it's hard for anybody that hasn't been in there to understand it. I, I couldn't imagine getting the door shut behind me. Mm, yeah, it is. You know, it, it's just so stinking lonely. The, the irony is it's never quiet. You're never actually really alone, but you're so lonely and it's so dingy and it's so dark. And you're just like, wow. I mean, that feeling. And for me, I, my, me and my family were very close, but they're not in Texas. They're not from Texas. So I wasn't getting the visits on the weekends. I got a few here and there. You know, they fly in. The phone calls are few and far between and expensive, but you get them, you know, and you, you cherish that 15 minutes you get until that stinking lady comes on and says, you have one minute remaining. And I just, you know, and those are the times where you're out of the world for, you're out of the cell for a second. You're just, you're with your family and then you're hanging out and you turn around and you're like, here I am again, just all alone. And it is even hard to explain for me after going through it the sense of loneliness. So I just, you know what I did? I just, I tried to improve myself. I read things that encouraged me. I read my Bible along with other books. I, I prayed a lot. I, um, you know, try, I went to classes where I could and, and things of that nature. And that really just helped me just getting a routine is what helped me through it. This will surprise our listeners, but I've had friends, childhood and adult that went to the penitentiary. Wow. And, um, you know, one went to a, what you would call the federal country club because it was yeah. a financial crime. Sure. But he, he talked about, you didn't have any freedom anymore. You got to talk about that, that look, I, I don't have a choice about when I can read, when I can eat, go to the bat. Not, talk about what that does. Yeah, that's extremely tough. That It's very demeaning, you know, and, and I, I'm not going to put a blanket statement on all, you know, guards or COs, but some were great and they treated you a human being as long as you treated them. And, and by the way, not an easy job. I mean, as soon as they walk in, there's inmates yelling at them and screaming at them. Um, but, you know, just kind of being looked down upon, not called by your name, called literally just, hey, inmate, right? And then, yeah, just sometimes I got talked to in a way that I wasn't used to being talked to. I, um, you know, maybe it's because I played sports, you know, I got, you know, I got respect that way or I'm a bigger guy. I didn't mind you know, fighting when I was young or whatever. It's just like if, to be able to be talked to like that. But my sole purpose and focus was to get home to my family. So I'm not about to, you know, let that get in the way. But there were a few times where it was really hard. I remember I was in the chow hall one time and I sat in the wrong seat. I didn't realize it, but I just sat down and they, the guy had yelled, hey, move over. And I didn't know he was talking to me, inmate, inmate. And I looked up, by the time I realized he was talking to me. So me, he goes, yeah, you, you stupid, whatever. And I was just like, the feeling. First, I was I was angry. I was like, I would really love to get my hands on you. And then it was just hurtful. It was like, I'm just, I made a mistake. I'm in here, but I'm a human being. I have family. I, you know, if you and I could probably get along outside of here. So it was tough. It was really hard to deal with that. 
Well, you came up for parole, and I'm, I'm going to presume you probably thought, I got this. I don't have a record. I've got a lot of support from the outside writing letters, which is typical. And I presume one of the parole board members interviewed you? They did. Yeah, there were several. I went in to the parole board, sat before a, a couple of them. Yeah. And did you think, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk. I'm going to get out. I did. I did. When I first was in that cell I mentioned after the trial, I, I, I said, you know, I'm going to take this as if I'm doing five years. And then I started talking it. <laughs> the one thing about the inmates is they all know everything, right? And so they all told me, you know, oh, yeah, you're going to get – and you start believing people because you want to. You want to hang on to that. You know, you've never done this. I said, okay. So I walked in. I think you probably know this. And all I knew is you either get parole, whatever that is, or they give you a one-year set off. You go see them in one year. That's all I knew. And I didn't know the system. And I walked in. I sat down very brief. Hey, good packet, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, we're going to give you a two-year set off. And I said, uh, I don't, what does that mean? <laughs> he said, that means we'll see you again in two years. And that's where, again, oh it was a kind of like a reset again. Like, okay, this, this ain't, this is not a, going to be a quick deal. You need to, this is your new normal. How'd you do your time? The inmates always talk about how they do their time. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think my, um, my career really helped me in terms of being a routine oriented person. And so I would just find a routine. I would get up in the morning, have a routine in terms of, my prayer, my, my Bible reading, reading other books that encouraged me when we were able to the rec yard or if we couldn't push ups, you know, doing something physical to keep my mind right. That's still a huge coping mechanism for me with mental health stuff. Um, so working out when there was classes offered, you know, I did some cognitive intervention classes that I really loved. I signed up for them. I went to them as much as I could. In some cases you work, right? You actually have a job. So that kind of sometime goes by there, but it was just being in a routine. And just trying to, and then of course, because you don't have choices, that routine can be flipped at any point in time and sometimes on purpose. So now you have to reset and find your new routine again at the new place. In your book, you thanked a, your teacher that taught that class, Cognitive Intervention. Yes. Tell, tell our listeners what that class is about. I've seen yeah. the class and so I've seen inmates in there that were career criminals and they don't, they didn't have the thinking skills. They didn't. Think of consequences uh, at all, and you, they're literally being taught that somehow they've gotten through life, and probably is why they're in the prison. What did it do for you? But tell us what happens in there. Yeah, so cognitive intervention is is just like it sounds, right? It's it's reaching in and kind of intervening your thoughts. Like, why do we think a certain way? Why would I have you know gone down these paths? You know, it all starts with a thought. And then you've got plenty of time to kind of let that be a fleeting thought or, or let it linger and take action on it. And so it's all those things like the step, the process of your thinking, honestly. And the, the curriculum was great. It was stuff I hadn't heard of. I didn't know. I, you know, I went to high school. I signed out of high school, went and played pro. I didn't know anything about cognitive intervention. And it really fascinated me. And then on top of that, Mrs. Bewley was amazing. Talk about being treated like a human. That was the one place I felt human. And I know it wasn't just me. It was all the inmates. And if I ever get an opportunity, I'm going to say this because we're your show. If I ever get an opportunity to thank her, I would be so blessed. I mean, she was a Rangers fan. She'd ask about baseball, but it was more than that. It was just treating everybody, not just me, like a human being and teaching that class with grace. And people would ask, you know, some guys are different learning faculties and, and she didn't treat anybody or look down on anybody. So it was just like a reprieve from the cells and the guards where you're getting treated and talked down to, to this encouraging older lady that just loved you like you were her son. 
and it, it blew me away. I mean, I received that love. She let me take the class over and over a couple times, and um, it was amazing. So the class was great. It really did help me in terms of um, you know my thought process and things of that nature. But it was more just her encouraging, positive words and smile every day that we really needed. You know, there were a couple of things I noticed in your book that obviously that have came out of the experience in there, and what that I think you know everybody can learn from. And one was. In life, you're only responsible for your actions. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would actually, I, I probably didn't write it, but I would, I would go a step further and say you're only responsible for your actions or your response to other people's actions, right? So, um, yeah, but I mean, more pointed to your question. I mean, that's really all we can control, literally, is, is my effort, my energy, my actions every single day. And I'm sounding like a coach now because I coach baseball daily, but when I tell the guys, it's like, there's a lot going on here that's out of your control. Why would we waste one moment on thinking or, or um, you know, thinking about those? Let's focus on the stuff we can control. And so for me in there, it was, it was reading. It was journaling. It was doing all these things um, that kept my mind off of, I really miss my family. There's a lot of really bad things going on around me. Um, I, I can't get any peace and quiet. You know, I'm trying to go to sleep and dominoes are slamming and I want to go crazy but I can't because that's just going to make things worse. <laughs> and so just all those things of, of, okay, what can I control? What's right in front of me? And that's it. You know, I know personally, and I've got friends this way too, that I try to practice what I would describe as uh, stoicism from the Romans is that I can only control my response, how I respond. And it sounds like that's what you did too. The other thing was interesting that I thought, everybody really needs to learn, especially young men, is that our actions in this life have consequences. Absolutely. Every single one of them. And, and here's the thing, too. Not just consequences for us. I mean, obviously, yeah, bad choice. At some point, it's going to catch up with you. You're going to have a negative consequence. Also, make great choices. And at some point, you're probably going to have some very positive consequences or results, I should say, rather than consequences. But not only that, what I really learned, Robert, is I love a book by Rick Warren, who wrote my forward, Purpose Driven Life. The very first sentence says, it's not about you. And I know for me, it was all about me, all about my career, all about everything, you know, all about me. And my choices don't just affect me. They affected my whole family. I had children that they, their dad went away to prison. I had a mom and dad that were devastated. And then, and then you know, it just balloons out from there. And so, yes. Choices, our choices have consequences. But more than that, if it was just like, hey, it's just me, I can do whatever I want with my life, I don't care. It's not that. It affects everybody around you who loves you and cares about you. Do you think we're living in a time, though, where in society, many people are like, oh, it's all about me? And yes. that's part of the problem today. I do. I absolutely think that. And I absolutely think daily, I have to remind myself, it's not all about me. Mm -hmm. I think human nature is, right? As we're babies, right. it's like me, 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 right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, not a day goes by where I'm not like offended by something or something happened. And I'm like in a little fun, maybe a day does go by, but often I have to remind myself, it's not about you. You're taking this all personally. So tell us what you do today. You coach youth baseball, yeah. young yeah. men. Do you coach any women? Just I do not. We had a couple softball teams at one point just because um, some friends started one. But for me, we have a nonprofit baseball program here in Austin, Texas called uh, GPS Legends. So ages seven through college. Yeah. On a daily basis, I'm either helping kids with recruiting with colleges 
or, you know, literally coaching them during the week at practice. We go to tournaments on the weekends and it depends on the age group, but I like to stick with the 17U group because they're knocking on the door to a college scholarship or we've had a few drafted. And so I kind of stick there and kind of walk them through that process, them and their families. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm, you know, t- teaching baseball, coaching baseball, but also big on the mental side, big on their choices, big on paying attention to little details that can affect them in their future. And they know you went to prison. They do. Yes. And what do you try to convey to them, the, the big life lesson for them? It, it's such a formative years. Yeah, I think that the big one and there's 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 several, you know, within that. But the big one is just like be aware of your of your thoughts. Again, going back to cognitive intervention, right? It's like be aware of what you let in and your thought process, because those thoughts become things. And if if you're constantly letting negativity in and letting, you know, things in, it's going to show up in your life. It's going to show up in your actions. And we, there's just no way around that, you know, whatever you plant, whatever you're, that's what you're going to sell, right? It's like, you can't plant for oranges and get an apple. It's not going to happen. So guys, be really aware of your thoughts. Um, Positivity is a big thing for me. They get down on themselves. They're facing a lot of tough things. And it's like, okay, well, let's focus on what we're grateful for. Let's focus on what is going good for you and build off that. So a lot, a lot of those little lessons that, you know, some of them I learned in prison, some of them I learned in my career, um, you know, and I'm still learning all the time. But yeah, a lot, a lot of that is just like, be aware of your choices. It, it really can affect your life. After he got out of prison, Puffer's first real job was to take out the trash, clean the aisles, and help maintain the professional baseball field for the Round Rock Express. The minor league team's owner, Reed Ryan, the son of Hall of Fame legend Nolan Ryan, hired Puffer. Now Puffer coaches youth and high school baseball players on how to play college and pro ball at GPS Legends, located in Central Texas near Round Rock in Georgetown. I placed a link to it in the show notes. In closing, here's my reporter's recap and reflections. No matter what walk of life they came from, most of the convicted felons that I've interviewed did not comprehend that their actions had consequences. To quote Puffer, the longer we try to ignore or run from those consequences, the more they will grow like a cancer that starts small, but eventually takes over the whole body, ignored. You've been listening to the True Crime Reporter podcast. Stay true, stay safe, and stay tuned for more stories from inside the crime scene tape. This is Robert Riggs reporting.